Hey guys, welcome back to VS Energy's BMS podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferrier, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Rich Fish. In today's podcast, we will be diving back into a little side series discussing mechanical equipment, and today's segment is boilers. So we talked, we, we asked this question on our last side series discussion about chillers. Why is this relevant to BMS? And, you know, we, we need, we need to understand the equipment that we are controlling and we need to control quality equipment. So we're just going to spend this episode discussing boilers, the different types of boilers, what makes a boiler good, bad, and, um, giving you guys a little bit of insight on that piece of mechanical equipment. And I think a good starting point for this conversation is essentially outlining the two categories of boilers, the two boiler types. And, um, you know, to my understanding, that is fire tube and water tube. And the names are fairly self-explanatory, but inside your boiler, you have tubes and there could either be the combustion gas in those tubes to heat up the, the water jacket or the water could be in those tubes with the combustion around those tubes and obviously they both serve the same purpose to generate hot water steam whatever they're built for but those little nuances can make a big difference depending on their application to my understanding i don't know if you guys want to opine water technology is old very old Boilers have been around for a long time, and it, as we progress into boiler control via BMS, the general uh, focus is on energy conservation. But a few years ago, we went to the island of Maui on a vacation and had the opportunity to tour a uh, museum dedicated to Alexander and Baldwin, who commercialized sugar production on the island in 1870. So the steam system that was installed basically provided motive force for pressing, uh, cooking, crystallizing, and uh, drying sugar cane, which was basically the feedstock for the boilers. So and look, and it was very interesting because they had a one-line schematic diagram of the steam system framed up on the wall, and that was the highlight of the tour from my perspective because they had hot water preheat economizers from returning condensate. Mm -hmm. They had air side preheat economizers, basically recovering stack heat. And all this was in 1870 and it had nothing really to do with, uh, you know, the cost of fuel because the fuel was free, but the motivation was to conserve the fuel. You know, there were limited, limited amounts of feedstock from the byproduct of pressing the cane. So all of those energy conservation strategies were all about maintaining the viability and operation of that steam system. So the energy conservation strategies aren't new. The design strategies aren't new. We just continue to build on the basis on the, on the established technologies that have been around for a long time. It was just really interesting to see. Interesting too, that uh, back in those days, a lot of uh, steam plants uh, not only was the steam used for heat, it was used for motive force as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I've still stumble every now and then into a plant where they actually have steam driven pumps. Yep. You'll, and you'll see that a lot in utility wow. plants. Really? They use uh, steam driven feed water pumps. That is insane to think of. I mean, I've never, 
I've never contemplated that as an, a motive force option. Well, if, I mean, you, if you back in the day, there were steam driven centrifugal chillers. There still are, but if, in a big plant where, uh, you know, utility style plant, um, we've been in a couple plants where they use steam in the process and they have cooling. Uh, they may have a steam driven centrifugal to use as a peak shaving device. So a lot that goes on with high pressure steam. And it all starts at the boiler, huh? Right. <laughs> yep. Awesome. So the two main diff the two main types of boilers are fire tube and water tube, correct? Well, fire tube and water tube distinguishes, you know, on a, on a large scale, you know, the types of boilers. There's also cast iron sectionals. There's a number of varieties, but especially when you talk about package boilers, which is what the predominant uh, boiler types are that we we deal with. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Fire mm -hmm. tube and water tube. Um, you know, when you get into industrial boilers or utility style boilers, those are all water tube with you know mud drum, steam drum, downcomers that are all you know water filled where boiling takes place. Um, but yeah, in general, water tube or lower volumes of water. It did one come before the other? Um, you know, the some of the earliest boilers were open vessels that people that put is in, crazy uh, to think about. Either large residences mm -hmm. um, to be able to, you know, steam does what? It goes to the coldest spot. So, um, you know, a castle might have a giant heated kettle in it mm -hmm. that, you know, distributes heat carried in, uh, in steam. So I guess you'd have to say uh, water tubes probably came first, mm -hmm. especially for, for uh, you know, residential applications and small commercial applications. Well, when you think of, too, the steam engines for railroads, for uh, tractors and stuff like that, the, yep. you know, they're, they're basically shoveling coal or wood or something into an open uh, you know, burning uh, vessel underneath of a, a big tub of water, a big tank of water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> the, you know, most really, you know, early ocean liners, steamers were steam engines. So, you know, they had onboard fuel, fuel capacity for coal or oil. And those steam engines were like Rich said, a big box that you stoked with fuel and made steam that provided the motive power to turn uh or actually to, to move piston engines so, and i i presume all of that was like what would you would call um single pass oh yeah so, once and done yeah there, there it goes well, yeah. go back to locomotive applications right um, yeah what what did they have about every you know interval you see the giant water tanks that you always saw in the old Western shows that had the uh, spigot that spun out over the track. Hey, you didn't get fuel, but if you had fuel and no water, you were still dead in the water. Yep. No pun intended. Yep. Yeah, people didn't ever really think about how important those water tanks at every train station were. Yeah. Right. No, no that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So fast forwarding to, 
I guess, kind of the modern boiler. And I, I think Mark already kind of called that out as your package boiler, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, we covered fire tube and water tube. And I thought just, just an interesting point that I thought you guys could maybe elaborate on and agree or disagree is when I was doing my internet research on this, it, it continuously came up that, mm, I don't want to say water tube are more common, but they're, they're known for being safer, theoretically. Is that something you would agree with? Does it really make a difference? Maybe it, maybe it doesn't. Obviously, with today's modern boilers, there's so many safeties built into them that, you know, you're not generally going to have an issue at the boiler, I would assume. But I just, I think inherently the design of a water tube boiler. Yeah, yeah. Is, I would agree. Is, is a safer overall design than fire tube. Less fact, volume of. Yeah, in fact, it's typically one of the. Uh, key differences listed between the two when you do a side-by-side comparison. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. Alrighty. And then obviously the, the, um, the big thing in, in today's boiler world is condensing boilers. Well, that's, yeah, that's one of many. So just going back and maybe we'll talk about it later. There are a number of strategies you can apply to, traditional boilers and we'll get to that i think uh that are non-condensing boilers as well but you know the innovations associated with condensing boilers are really game changers that flow through into modern system design that flow through into you know the whole building especially for new building design so do you want to discuss what a like how the theory behind the condensing boiler for our listeners that maybe don't fully understand it? Uh, sure. So when we burn fuel in a boiler, basically two byproducts of boiler of uh, combustion are carbon dioxide and water vapor. Mm-hmm. So in a traditional boiler design, it's imperative that we maintain the stack temperature and the surface temperatures inside the boiler above the condensing temperature of the water vapor so as to prevent the formation of condensate and associated acidic uh, deposits right. on the stack and the boiler surfaces. So that really limits the upper limit of boiler efficiency because you need to maintain the stack temperature at a stack and surface temperatures at a higher temperature. So that water vapor has a uh, energy metric associated with it. It's about latent, latent heat in, the, latent in that heat, vapor. Right. Yep. 970 BTUs per pound that by going below the condensing temperature, and that's what we're talking about in a condensing boiler, we are able to extract that uh, energy and go from what's called the lower heating value to the higher heating value of our fuel source and basically use that heat so the you know at a upper limit for non-condensing boilers of maybe 85 percent we can get up to to the mid to high 90s with a condensing boiler in terms of efficiency but that's dependent also on the the um the temperature that you're the, the hot water temperature too right i mean if I'm making 180 degree water, I'm not going You're to not be in, condensing. Yeah, yeah, which is big because I think that's a my, my next 
kind of point of discussion then is these things are great, but they do have their applications as opposed to your, I don't know, your standard industrial boiler or whatever you want to call it, right? Well, in general. Or does it not necessarily matter nowadays? The supply water is not as essential as the return water. Yes. Okay. Yep. If you can have a very high delta T, yep. As long as you have return water coming back in the one twenty to one thirty degree range, in a multi-stage boiler that has can operate in both non-condensing and condensing mode, um, you may be able to operate at one eighty, but uh, at least be partially condensing as long as your return water is sufficiently low. Yeah, that's a great point. That I guess I didn't. Um... I didn't cover. Yeah, it, it is dependent on the return water temperatures. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, oftentimes that's part of the what we make sure we're doing in the uh, BMS application and control of the right. uh, the loop. You may bypass some of that water to make sure that the return water is staying in that condensing range. Yeah, great point, Rich. There it is. That's that's tying in right to our BMS podcast uh, discussion there perfect reason for that so uh, in, in a new building that's designed for condensing boilers uh, you'll often see the correctly sized air handling unit coils radiation etc sized for lower supply water temperatures now in the case of on a design day in the case of a retrofit or in the case of an existing building if you're going to use lower supply water temperatures, that typically has to occur in shoulder months. So your existing radiation, your existing hot water coils in your air handling units uh, won't be able to provide sufficient heat if you try and run your condensing or your boilers in condensing mode with a upper limit of supply water at 140 or you know thereabouts. Right. That was designed for 180, 190, yep. maybe even 200 degree hot water mm-hmm. supply temperature. So you do uh, um, you do a hybrid plant where you have a condensing boiler for shoulder months, or even to reheat or to preheat return water before it feeds into the primary boilers that might be packaged boilers that can run at one eighty. Yep. Yeah. And so I was just I was trying to get my words together. Uh, it'd be like a reset schedule, kind of de- depending on outside air temperature, right? Right. Or could be. And, and that reset schedule with a package boiler used to be accomplished by, you know, basically a primary secondary loop where the boiler would make 180 degree water. Yeah. But then it would go through a three-way valve that mixed it so mm-hmm. we didn't overheat uh, areas that had radiation that was dependent on reset schedule to maintain space temperature. But now you can rip that all out and just send it through the boiler and let, let it do its job with a, right. with a condensing boiler, that is. Correct. Yeah. Yes. If you do it the other way you'll have some issues you'll have, you'll have some cor- right <laughs> corrosion yeah. and all the all the bad stuff associated with that and then i think a cool thing about I, I, we're kind of geared towards condensing boilers now on our on our timeline of discussion but like these and uh, correct me if i'm wrong but compared to like your your traditional i keep calling them traditional i don't know what the right term is i, I think of them as traditional boilers um these can these can turn down their firing rate a lot more or even more. I don't know. Like I suppose a traditional boiler, boiler you can fire at a lower rate as well. 
but the turndown on a condensing boiler is way more, right? In general, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's just a function of if you turn down a conventional boiler, there's a couple of things that happen. Number one, you need to have sufficient turbulence in the firebox to maintain a firing rate. The boiler flame requires a minimum level of fuel velocity and turbulence okay. to promote and maintain ignition, mixing, and combustion. Mm-hmm. So there's ways around it, hot surface igniters and things like that. But in general, conventional boilers are only going to stay firing down to about 30% of their maximum rate. Uh, that you know takes you, for that reason, a, a typical conventional boiler we cycle the boiler using the thermal mass of the boiler uh the mass of the heated media when the boiler shut off right so the the least efficient boiler on the planet is a conventional boiler that's turned off because what happens when you turn the boiler off heat goes up the stack exactly (laughs) so you know it's become a common energy conservation practice to put stack dampers in to stop that convective cooling when the boiler's off. And, you know, there are, you have to get the correct stack damper correctly, interlock it with the ignition sequence, make sure there's an end switch on it, all those things. But when a boiler, a hot boiler is turned off, you can go up and measure the stack and it will be, you know, within 15 or 20 degrees of the hot water temperature in the boiler because air comes through the combustion fan opening and convex out the stack i think another good point too is and actually you know i guess i've seen it firsthand technically is you got to remember you, you you still need flow on the boiler too when you shut it off because it is so hot that that stuff can boil and it i don't oh, yeah. know explode i don't know how to say explode but you're gonna you're gonna hit your your pop release relief on uh, your system and you're going to have hot water everywhere in the mechanical room at least or or steam or steam yeah though normally yep. they, those uh, pressure safeties vent the steam outdoors oh, the okay hot, the hot water pressure st- safeties usually vent to a drain somewhere yeah yeah right. yep i've seen it i guess it'd be going to the drain in the mechanical room so it, there's been hot water all over the floor in the mechanical room when that when that happens <laughs> yeah a lot of times they they the pipe just like lays on the ground right near a drain it actually yeah. doesn't go down yep. in so yep it, it just kind of goes everywhere got, yep <laughs> and I, I didn't mean to cut you off on that one rich but i i uh yeah well i've seen some really big boilers with pressure safeties that when the the there's a fault and you know stuff shuts down and it's got to relieve pressure it sounds like you're standing next to a bloody train whistle. Oh, oh yeah. I, I could imagine. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. When you hear 600 PSI uh, steam go through a safety valve, it's like a F-16 is taking off. <laughs> Not a good day. Actually, uh, funny story. Just a brief interjection working on a project that had a, uh, a heat recovery yeah, it was a cogen project had a heat recovery boiler and there was another tech working with me and uh, they had an unexpected shutdown and uh, the pressure safety you know popped to relieve the pressure and you know it sounded like a train whistle going off and then it would 
you know, relieve enough, it would close and then build up and open up again. After the second time it did it, my technician disappeared. About two hours later, he returned and I said, what happened to you? And he goes, I was scared. I left. Oh my gosh. Yep. Hey, I could imagine it's quite the frightening sound, sight, whatever. I mean. Well, at least the first time or two you hear it, it is. Yes, yes, yes. Once you kind of. So is that more of a, it sounded like you were going to interject, Mark, and say this kind of happens more often, not more often than not, but. It's kind of a common occurrence in a mechanical room for some industrial facilities. Uh, industrials, um, you know, we did a big project a few years ago at a uh, pulp and paper mill, and they incinerated their waste right in a in a waste boiler. Yep, and at the same time, they drove a thirty megawatt uh, steam turbine as a cogen plant. Mm-hmm. But whenever their waste consumption in that boiler exceeded the capacity required to produce steam, they just blew it off. And they had a, a rack. I think there, if I remember right, I think there were six uh, pop safeties in a row oh. you know, on, a, on a manifold. Yeah. And when those things let off, you know, they created a cloud over the plant. And it was, if you didn't have your hearing protection on, it was, it was just painful. So, yeah, it, it, it does happen, especially in industrials, you know, less at other places. It shouldn't happen. They're there for a reason, not necessarily daily to be exercise. Used. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's meant as a failure safety, not something that you expect to happen on a yes. regular basis. Right. Is that – and when that kind of occurs, I assume it's pretty bad for the boiler, right? I mean, you're, you're – would you say rapidly cooling? Or, or I don't know, maybe not because there's no flow, so – Maybe it doesn't do any harm not to the boiler. I mean, there, there can be flow. It's yeah. just not enough flow to dissipate all the yes. heat. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not necessarily bad for the boiler. It's there to protect the boiler, the building. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, a big boiler, you know, in uh, we've done a lot of central plant work. And, you know, people that live in cities where, that are served by central steam plants, they don't realize the the potential energy that's stored in a steam system um enormous amount of potential energy in a multi-boiler plant that you know is probably located in the heart of a downtown area yeah and without safeties that are tested and uh inspected and operate that that's a (laughs) that's a lot of energy that uh, released improperly could do some serious damage yeah, I can imagine. Those are very, very big boilers, too, in that application. I mean, I'm, you know, when I think about even my my perception is probably skewed a little bit. Uh, what what would be the, the, the biggest boiler that I've worked with, seen as a, a um, 3 MBH, right? But pretty pretty small for the most part you know what i mean oh, oh no the the penthouse i guess had bigger ones those are big boilers those are very big boilers well so. you know a typical utility boiler like the biggest utility boiler i've ever worked on uh was eight stories tall holy cow so i mean to go from the mud drum to the steam drum was eight flights of steps and 
you know, that was making 400,000 pounds of steam an hour. That, that's a big boiler. That and is, that's a huge one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a, 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 right in, in Rochester, there are boilers that are five stories tall. I was going to say, about the biggest ones that I've ever been around have been in the, you know, 40 to 50 feet tall, which I guess would be about five stories. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, I just, uh, uh, being, you know, younger into the industry and maybe the way things are going with, or just, just just for what I've seen, though, um, yeah, I just haven't had the whole, the range of the magnitude of what a boiler can be. I don't know, people probably think of it's a, something the size of your refrigerator, you know, and it could be, right. but it could be. <laughs> there's the magnitude is just, there's such a huge range, which, which I just find extremely intriguing, interesting. I don't know. It's cool how big some of these things can get. It seems to be at least in, you know, the recent designs that I've worked around a, a trend towards uh, smaller modular boilers where you yeah. build it, they build a train of boilers yep. instead of having one or two big ones they might have six or or so smaller modular style yep well and and there's benefits to that number one you can okay if i have six boilers and i can turn each one down to 10 percent, my total turn down on the boiler plant is much more and each boiler by itself has you know it's it's safety's built into it when you get a large boiler plant put together like back uh you know, there used to be boilers, and maybe there still are boilers called Ohio Specials. That yeah. Under 250 boiler horsepower, you didn't have to have a stationary engineer in the state of Ohio. So schools would have, you know, rows of Ohio Specials so that they didn't have to have a full-time stationary engineer. So once you get into larger boilers, they are, uh, you know, the risk associated with them, the the amount of solar energy goes up and the requirement for a full-time on-site uh, stationary engineer to monitor performance, uh, monitor all the operating parameters uh, goes up. If, what a workaround that is to say, I'm going to, I'm going to line up however many of these under, um, what was the, the threshold mark? 250 boiler horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to line up all these under that threshold so I don't need a stationary engineer, but com- the combined boiler horsepower of all of these has got to be what you know way more than. Sure. Yeah, uh, that's right. interesting. So on these bigger boilers, going through uh you know my my education process and the CEM and working with you and in, in industry, uh, a big thing that, and I'm visualizing this chart is um, O2 trim on a boiler, right? And you would. Generally, that is something you would do on a large commercial boiler, correct? To well, more and more, we're seeing it on package boilers. Um, the technology's gotten better, more cost effective. So, more and more, we're seeing it on on um, commercial boilers. And you know, why do we do O2 trim um, in the Big picture, perfect combustion means the exact amount of oxygen molecules are in the vessel to connect with the fuel source with zero leftover. Right. There's one, you know, the, the bundle is perfect. There's no waste of fuel. There's no waste of oxygen. 
the physical requirements for, you know, uh, combustion in a boiler is a violent process. There is, you know, air coming through the burner. There's fuel being injected, and then a flame that you look at the flame and oh, is the right color. Well, this is all happening really fast. So, you know, it's like a speed dating for energy. You have fuel and air together inside the boiler. They have to get together and be ignited, and somebody's going to get left behind, either fuel or air. So if we, do, if we have excess fuel, that will result in boiler sooting. Uh, it will result in incomplete combustion, and that's just not a good situation. Right. Consequently, we go to the other side, and we have excess air. Now, if we have too much excess air, well, that's a problem because air is only 21% oxygen. All the rest of those constituents, primarily nitrogen, are dead weight. So when they go into the boiler, they have to be heated up to whatever the combustion temperature is and exhausted. So as you get more and more excess air, that brings in more and more of the dead weight that we have to heat up, which goes right up the stack. So the objective is to reduce the excess air to the point where we have no sooting and as close to perfect combustion as we can get so that we waste less energy heating the non, uh, non-productive constituents of the combustion process. One of the other benefits of uh, O2 trim is safer operation of the boiler. For uh, sure. When you combine that technology, uh, it, it uh, you know, constantly monitors and makes sure that that combustion process is not getting off the curve or getting into unsafe regions where you know, bad things can happen. Well, every industrial facility has uh, continuous O2 trim. You know, I mean, every utility-style boiler, every, well, I shouldn't say every, almost all large-scale um, commercial boilers that are used, you know, for plant steam, et cetera, have O2 trim. And uh, as Rich said, it really improves the safety and certainly improves the efficiency. As in, they have O2 trim. As in, like it's built in. Like there's a there's a sensor in the stack, kind of like how your car would look at the combustion mixture. Very, very similar. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. That's kind of how I visualize it uh, functioning. So makes sense. Absolutely. And O2 is a pretty difficult. Um, it, it, it is expensive to monitor, and a stack as large as a utility boiler. So. Many times they'll do a uh, correlated gas, which is easier to measure, like uh, CO. Yeah, okay. So, if um, high CO is basically right. indicating low O2. Correct. Yep. Hmm. And, and you can do that. A lot of the uh, in-situ monitors uh, are IR-based, so they'll put an IR uh, source on one side of the stack and a receiver on the other side of the stack, and, you know, based on the change of, of the IR source, they can analyze how much um, CO is in the stack. That is just really interesting. I always, I always just thought that portion of it uh, very much intrigued me as, you know, it's like you're basically like tuning a boiler like you would a car in a way, make it run at its optimal. Well, your car analogy is very relevant because I'm a carburetor guy. You know right. that. 
Yes. I, I love carburetors, but a uh, carburetor doesn't take into account anything in terms of what the changes in atmospheric conditions are. Right. The changes in the operation of the equipment yep. is basically you tune it. And in the old days, you know, if you look at the uh, curve of the inlet force draft inlet damper, it had a series of, they have a series of screws on them that you move up and down that have a spring that ride over them. That, that's the cam for the force draft damper opening. And that's how you would tune the boiler. Huh. Adjusting those set screws up and down yeah. and changing the curvature of the, the spring, which was the cam that the follower for the force draft fan uh, actuator followed. Jeez, that's crazy. And Okay, so moving forward then, um, I would consider that, you know, that's all about efficiency, operating efficiency, but that's not, that there's more you can do, such as heat recovery, right, Mark? And I know you alluded to this earlier in the podcast, but I think it's a good time to start discussing maybe what are some standard good methods to apply to a, I guess you would consider it probably more of a traditional boiler to recover waste heat, improve efficiency as a, as a BMS system or whatever? Uh, so we talked a little bit just a second ago about the non-productive constituents of the air that come into a boiler. Yep. So the best thing, one of the easiest things to do is to preheat the combustion air with wasted heat. Yep. Uh, you can do that with a recuperator. Recuperator is a non-contact heat exchanger that goes around a boiler stack mm -hmm. that basically draws air past the boiler stack in a passive manner and preheats the incoming combustion air and along with that the, the non-productive constituents and you reduce the amount of heat required from the fuel to heat the to heat all of the stack gas. So that's yep. that's a pretty easy one. Mm -hmm. um, so that's non-contact. Then you have uh, a regenerator, which basically goes in the stack and can do the same thing. So it would, you know, if you can visualize a boiler stack and some tubes running perpendicular to the uh, gas flow through the stack and then drawing air in for combustion air, that's you know what, how a uh, regenerator works. And then there's also, especially in large boilers, there are stack economizers that will are basically think about a, a coil, like a heating coil, that goes in the stack to capture heat for preheat water. And on utility type systems, very common, almost always there. So you're um, talking about the uh, feed water preheat. Feed water preheat, right? Yeah. And then, you know, the the most advanced uh, systems that we've seen are what's called a condensing heat exchanger, where at the boiler connection to the stack, liquid water is injected into the stack, creating steam. And that gives you the opportunity after the economizer, and you'll still be above the condensing temperature on, on a big uh, boiler, that the last element in the stack will be a condensing heat exchanger where the liquid H2, so that would be in contact, the condensing heat exchanger would be the uh, heat source, your uh, heat exchanger feed water would actually be the city water that goes to the deaeration tank. And the liquid H2O that you injected at the boiler 
condenses on the surface of the condensing heat exchanger and you squeeze every last little bit of energy out of your boiler. You essentially have turned your boiler into a condensing boiler. So it all happens at the stack. That is the critical. <laughs> I mean, but that's where all your energy goes. I, I mean, I completely understand that. Um, yeah. when, you're, when you're looking at a boiler, you know, if you drew a box and energy in and energy out, that is your energy out the stack. Yep. So makes waste perfect en- sense. Your waste energy, waste energy out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Your, energy, your right. energy out is the heated, the steam or the water. You're right. The waste energy out your, your leftover water. Yep. Yeah. That's just a crazy thing about it. It's all you focus. Everything is on that stack for, for heat recovery. Essentially when you're looking at just the boiler, not well, the system, I assume. Not exclusively, because especially, again, we go to large boiler systems, uh, industrial or large commercial, a utility-style boiler will have blowdown on the water side. So on a steam drum, oh, there's an right. area of the steam drum where what it's basically the standard operating water level called the scum line, and the boiler blows down off the skimmer, mm-hmm. the scum line, intermittently. And then on the mud drum, which is at the bottom of the boiler where all the solids go to, there's usually continuous blowdown. So both of those are sources of heat for preheating uh, feed water, Yep. you know, any of that kind of thing. So the bigger the boiler is, you know, a lot of those strategies are already built in because everybody operating those size boilers recognizes, Hey, this is all energy waste. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. So I guess uh, continuing the conversation on boilers, uh, we covered, uh, I guess you'd call it heat recovery. I think pretty well. And again, we rich actually touched on this the way kind of, well, and you Mark, but um, how modern facilities maybe are controlled a little bit or, or designed I don't know if it's worth having discussion about control methods of boilers. And I don't know, my, like my thought of that is, like Rich said, you know, now they're going to put a, a lot a more smaller boilers in place of just one massive boiler. And you assume you have to control that a little differently. And maybe that is just your BMS system is just enabling them and letting them do their thing. But again, probably a, a decent conversation point. You mean from a, a control a control standpoint, uh, particularly these days, the boilers are coming with you know, a lot of package control associated right. with them. So you just tell it to turn on when it's yeah, needed. we'll tell it to turn on. Uh, you know, if it's a uh, a hot water boiler, you know, we may give it the temperature set point. Yep. We you know we may uh, engage the circulating pumps or the secondary you know pumps depending on, you know, if it's a hot water boiler system, which honestly, that's most of what I see anymore, hot water boilers in in commercial applications, Mm -hmm. not so much steam anymore. Right. um, Obviously, there's still uh, a lot of applications, particularly when you get into the larger plants and utility plants for steam, and especially in any kind of cogen or anything like that. But from the standpoint of a typical commercial building, we see much more hot water boilers, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, they're condensing boilers, they're running uh, 
in a modular fashion. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of capability for redundancy. Yep. Uh, for turn down. Yep. So the BMS ends up, you know, basically as the kind of the coordinator. Sometimes the boiler manufacturer may provide a master control panel that deals with all of that instead of the BMS and the BMS just interfaces to that for informational purposes and, and set point changes. So it, it can vary a lot. Um, I tend to see more frequently these days where the BMS is kind of acting like the master controller, you know, telling a boiler to start uh, giving it a set point you know, making sure that the circulating pump is on before you turn on the right the enable to the boiler and, and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But as far as the firing rate and the safeties and all of that stuff, that's all internal, internal. these days. Yeah. Yeah. Boiler plants aren't as exciting to control as they used to be. <laughs> no, they're not. And, and I mean, especially looking back to 30 years ago, I would say 25 to 30%, maybe more, of the school buildings uh, that we worked in had steam boilers. And you look at the, and what was the value of steam? Well, it's easy to distribute. It's uh, very controllable heat. All those things are positives. But then when you look at the negatives associated with steam or the drawbacks, not necessarily the negatives, you have a whole condensate system that requires maintenance. You have a steam trap right. or two in every room, mm-hmm. um, steam valves. What's the one thing you've always found in your career, Mark, that never gets maintained properly? Steam traps. Steam traps. Yes. Never. I knew yes. that one too. <laughs> uh, well, and, and believe it or not, there was a time when, and, and maybe they're still in business, I don't know. There was a company that manufactured steam traps that all they were was a machined orifice in the, uh, in a piece of pipe. And that went in to replace the trap with the assumption being we can afford, you know, that little bit of steam all the time. And then the condensate would just back up and whatever it was controlling. And you know, that it, it would maybe become a flooded coil, but when the peak demand period for heat was over, it would eventually drain out and, I mean, the amount of energy and time and money that goes into a good steam trap maintenance program, yeah, it it pays for itself, but it still is a consumer of all that maintenance and operations resource, all the testing, all all that thing, which modern school districts, I haven't seen a modern new building going with a steam system in many, many years. Nor I. Tell me a little bit before we wrap this up, when when you design a boiler plant or what have you, and you you focus on redundancy, how much, it depends on the facility. I get that. But is there like a, you know, N plus one kind of redundancy you you would always lean towards or like to see? Uh, Obviously you'd like to see at, at, you know, at a minimum an N plus one so that you can have, uh, something you know out for service without yeah. interrupting the operation of your building. Mm-hmm. Um, you get into you know more critical applications. You know they may have N plus two, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it is going to depend on the application. But you know we typically see designs nowadays with at least a minimum of N plus one, and with the modular approach that most people are taking, 
it helps you a it's lot. E- it, it's easy to build that in. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you lost whatever, if you, you know, if you're down to 80%, you still can do 80%. It's not like you have two boilers, you know, and if you lose one, you're down to 50% capacity. Right. So that, yeah, that's a great thing about that modular approach. Um, and I don't know. I think with that being said, guys, we, we covered a lot about boilers and surprisingly, almost like all of our podcasts and for our listeners, there's, there's definitely more to talk about, but we just wanted to be able to take an hour segment and discuss them at length. If you're not familiar with them, you know, familiarize yourselves, our listeners with, with what a boiler is, a little bit more of the technology and thought behind it. Um, and like we said, it's all important because if you're, in the BMS industry, you're going to be interfacing with these things. So you, you have to have an understanding of how they function, what is efficient, you know, what are efficient control methods and so on and so forth. So hopefully you guys enjoyed the conversation. I sure did. I definitely learned as like all of these podcasts, I always learn on them. So I love listening to you, uh, Rich and Mark talk about this because you guys are full of so much knowledge. And with that being said, stay tuned for our next episode. We will be discussing initial costs versus life cycle costs in systems design. And those are things to consider. So we'll dive into that discussion. And for more information on us, be sure to check out our website, www.vsenergy.us or www.trinityas.com. So thanks a lot. Thanks for your time, Mark and Rich, and have a great day to our listeners.